So, good evening, everyone. It was nice sitting in here earlier. It was so quiet. I was like, this is good. (laughs) We're getting quiet now. (laughs) So I wanted to begin uh, talking tonight and just sharing a Hopi creation story. I've been reading it a lot lately, and I've been reading other teachings from the Hopi people and some of their philosophy. It's really beautiful. So the Creator gathered all of creation and said, I want to hide something from the humans until they're ready for it. It is the realization that they create their own reality. The eagle said, give it to me, I'll take it to the moon. The creator said, no, one day they will go there and they'll find it. The salmon said, I will bury it at the bottom of the ocean. And the creator said, no, they will go there too. The buffalo said, I will bury it out on the great plains. The creator said, they will find it. They'll cut into the skin of the earth and find it even there. And then Grandmother Mole, who lives in the breast of Mother Earth and who has no physical eyes but sees with spiritual eyes, said, put it inside of them. And the Creator said, it is done. So in some way, these qualities of love and compassion like they're inside of us. I think that's something we, we discover more and more that everything that we're looking for is inside. You know, Everything we're searching for, we're hoping for, trying to connect to, it's inside of us in some way. And retreats are uh, both beautiful and difficult. I'm sure you can attest to that so far, right? <laughs> And it's because often we have to go into the underworld of the mind. You know, these great uh, archetypal stories of having to go into the underworld, right? And kind of go into the shadows. So we've been in the shadows of the underworld the last couple of days. Because <laughs> we have to find in the underworld, we find the roots of things there. Right? In our normal reality, we see the tops of the trees, we can't see the roots of what's going on. We can't see where is this originating from. We have to get very close. Sometimes on retreat you have to get dirty, you know, go down and roll around in it and, <laughs> you know, look and see what's going on. And it's difficult to do that. And so I wanted to talk about compassion tonight. And I wanted to talk about it with wisdom. How do we have wise compassion? It was kind of good to hear some of the questions about how do we respond to the mass of suffering on the planet. This is a very important question. How do we respond? What's the wise response? I think that's the key. Compassion that doesn't have wisdom in it isn't sustainable. I've seen this for myself. It's just not. It's not. It doesn't have a strong enough foundation. So I want to talk about that as we go along tonight. How do we have wise compassion? Also, um, I found this little teaching. It was with the Buddha and his cousin Ananda, who was his attendant, and uh, you could say probably a very dear friend for 35 years of the Buddha's life. He cared for the Buddha, and, and in all the texts. Ananda is a key figure. <laughs> He's kind of well, someone who memorized all the Buddha's teaching and is said to have uh, passed them down orally. He, be, he was a great holder of knowledge. So um, one day Ananda asked the Buddha, would it be true to say that the cultivation of love, loving kindness and compassion is part of our practice? To which the Buddha replied, no. It would not be true to say that the cultivation of loving kindness and compassion is part of our practice. Ananda, it would be true to say that the cultivation of loving kindness and compassion is all of our practice. Mm-hmm. 
And so I think that it's so beautiful. And there was this other great quote by the Buddha where he said, the greatest protection in all the world is loving kindness. That's very interesting, protection in all the world. And we've heard these beautiful quotes, hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is an ancient and eternal law. And I think about that when I think about so many of the great activists in the world. You know, Mahatma Gandhi's biography always stood out because it said, here's my experience with truth. These are ancient. <laughs> here's one person's experiment. Right? I love that. So what we are practicing here, what I want to express at the beginning of this talk, is this has a lineage. <laughs> This isn't some airy-fairy thing like, ooh, love, yeah, let's sit and love ourselves, you know. On one level it looks like that with practices like these because we don't really have, these are just practices. We don't have a way to um, always, it's like how do we cultivate this? So we, we come up with these ways, right? Or we, we learn ways, like how do, I, how do I develop this heart? What are we trying to point to? But what I want to point to tonight is not the normal kind of compassion. I want to talk about it as this great compassion that is potential and the healing power of that kind of compassion when it's manifest, right? That kind of love that it's, when it's manifest. And it's a love and compassion that we don't know very well in our culture. Many of us uh, equate love with a kind of uh, relational type of love. Kind of what Sharda was talking about last night. It has a lot of conditions on it. Uh, it's on. It's like a, it's a certain type of love, but it, it's only on one level, right? And then for a lot of people, my experience with them around compassion is um, that we also have this idea of compassion. We have an image maybe of giving a homeless person a dollar, like have compassion. Come on, you know, like okay. <laughs> kind of like Catholic church or something, you know. <laughs> I had a friend who was a good friend of mine from Ireland. I tell this story a lot. I don't know, Irene, you're out there. <laughs> Your story goes on and on. She was raised in one of those very strict Catholic uh, nunneries in the, out in the Ireland, uh, way out of the city, out of Dublin. And um, the nuns would be giving them these talks on compassion. And then... Uh, when they would be in the morning forced to eat these huge bowls of oatmeal, you know. Kids don't like oatmeal, really, with nothing on it, just bowls of oatmeal. And they would smack them with spoons and stuff and say, they're, they're starving babies, have compassion, eat your oatmeal, right? And then they would do these drives for African children, African relief, and they would make all the kids feel guilty they would say, don't you care about the starving babies? And then again, the kids would cry and go, starving babies, oh my God, you know, they didn't really know. But that's, we don't really have the deeper view of it or even, it sounds nice, actually. Let's be compassionate. Yes, we could all, we could all agree to that, right? <laughs> that's a good quality. But what we're talking about is something far more powerful. And in my own life, I've come to see that what the great masters have expounded, great teachers like Shantideva, 8th century scholar, and yogis like Shavkar, and live in caves, and Milarepa, and they allude to compassion again and again and again. They sing songs about it, they bow to it, they, and I, I couldn't understand that all the time, like, okay, I get it, let's be nice, right? <laughs> And then over time, I was like, oh, okay, this is why it's powerful. It has layers of understanding how it affects our mind, how it actually becomes a liberating quality. That's different. So, you know, here we are on retreat, and we go into the underworld, and often that's what has to happen. We have to be willing to feel we have to have a willingness to feel. So last year, um, I spent five months in a retreat. And for three of those months, I was alone in a cabin. And at first, people had said, are you sure you want to do a three-month cabin retreat? 
I had done two months at a center and I was like, yes, yes, I can do it. And then I really talked to myself. I thought, Spring, you're going to be alone in this cabin. Okay, what's the worst thing that is going to happen to you in here? A feeling. That's it. I thought, well, I'm pretty strong. Done a lot of retreats. I have a lot of compassion. I was like, the worst thing that's going to happen is a terrible feeling. I can be with that. Right? There was some kind of warrior energy. Let's do it. Be with the feelings, right? Bring it on. Well, I could <laughs> be careful what you ask for. <laughs> you know, those prayers you have where you say, I'll do anything to be free. I'll, you know, I want to transform my whole life and then everything starts to flip upside down. It's kind of like one of those prayers we pray, right? May I be free of all my clinging. I want to, you know, then everything falls apart. Wait, maybe I don't want to be quite that free. You know, we start, <laughs> not yet, not yet, you know. So there was a lot of feelings, that's for sure, and very intense feelings. And I, I had known about compassion, obviously. There was it's a huge part. Meta and compassion have been the cornerstones of everything I've worked on for 15 years up until that point. So I had a great faith in it. I wouldn't have gone into a cabin alone if I didn't. Right? You need compassion to do a retreat alone, isolated, intensive practice. You just do. You rely on yourself. You're your own teacher. You're everything you you rely on, right? You rely on yourself when you get stuck. And so um, pretty soon into that retreat, I started prostrating more and more to compassion. And then as the retreat went on, this quality, I started to see it manifest. And then I started to call compassion the great chief. And I would bow outside on the ground and go, you're the chief, (laughs) flat, head on the earth. Yes, because only compassion could come with me to be with those kind of emotions that I was purifying. Because that's what we do here. It's like retreat is purification. Retreat is everything that obscures the beauty of our our nature. Everything that is in the way has to be removed. It has to be seen through all of the veils, like I love that poem um, that Shada read about the veils. What are veils? Veils are made up of all kinds of thoughts and emotions and delusion, all congealed, right? And to let one fall, and then another fall, and then another fall. Even though it sounds beautiful, it is beautiful, but it comes with us letting go or letting be being willing to feel because we are invested in all those veils, right? We dance with them for lifetimes, right? We feel protected by them. So to actually become a free person, one has to kind of endure a certain amount of our own delusion, a lot of our own delusion, which is made up of pain and clinging and memory and trauma and ancestral trauma, you know, going back in time, you know, we're clearing veil after veil. The only thing I think it can go with you, which I know, not think now, is love and compassion. It's the only, if we were warriors, that would be our two defenses and wisdom, right? Wisdom always. <laughs> but our two little sidekicks, our chiefs, the ones we would go to when it's a bleak night, night of the, you know, dark night of the soul. Who do you, who do you call on? Right? Thomas Merton said love. <laughs> right? In the darkest moment, love, come quickly. <laughs> right? We need that. So I tested that in the cabin. I tested the theory of how strong is compassion. <laughs> and I, I feel like I was shown. <laughs> and it's a good thing. The Dalai Lama, he always says, love and compassion are necessities, not luxuries. Without them, humanity cannot survive. So this is actually a survival thing now. Right? If we don't wake up, if we can't feel, we really can't act. So this, is, this becomes very important, not only to our practice, but to the planet, to how we move about on the earth, to our connection to all beings. 
We have a lot of fear. A lot of fear. That's something I dealt with in the cabin was hours and hours of terror. I didn't know where it came from. I would just sit with it like, oh my gosh, is this possible to be this? Oh yeah, this is terror. Mm-hmm. I'd be sitting, yeah, this is really beyond terror now, breath after breath, right? Moment after moment. <laughs> well, let's see how big terror can get. I mean, and I watched it get all, you know, to annihilation size. <laughs> the Persian poet Havi says, fear is the cheapest room in the house. I'd like to see you living in better conditions. If only we could, you know, really. <laughs> of course. So on retreat, it's in some way designed to look deeply. And that's why we developed this quality. Not because someone told us to, not because we were slapped by a nun and told us the right thing to do. We do it because it's the only sane response. Okay, suffering arises. We have a lot of responses. The habitual ones don't really work. The teaching of the arrow, right? We get shot with an arrow. Instead of gently tending to that wound, right? Like, okay, let's take this out. We then shoot another, right? And it could probably go on and then another, right? And then we're full of arrows, not so good, right? Suffering. So we take out the arrow. And then once we're able to take out our arrow, when we have genuine compassion, we're able to actually then start to help others, right? There's a natural movement. So it all starts with, in some way, ourselves, how we can relate to our own mind in any moment. So that question when Mark was talking today, how do you relate to your suffering? How do you relate to your vulnerability? How do you relate to your own fear? Because we all have to find a way to work with fear, right? We have to come to peace with fear. But how do we really relate to ourselves? And how do we relate to ourselves when no one's looking, when it's just the inner dialogue, right? This dialogue clicks on. Have you noticed this yet? The commentary? <laughs> like, wake up in the morning, it's, here we are, da, 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 ongoing one. <laughs> it's like the, I think, who is that though? It says like a CNN news ticker all day long. It comments on every single moment of, <laughs> right? It's painful. There was a girl on the young adult retreat uh, I was teaching a couple months ago. Maybe last year, a couple months ago, or last year retreat. She had been on retreat only a couple of days. She came in for an interview with me. And with all the sincerity in her heart and with tears in her face, she said, it's like I'm in a phone booth with an insane person with a megaphone. No, she said lunatic. That was the word, lunatic with a megaphone. And she looked at me with the depths of her heart. She said, please help me to make this stop. And I looked at her and I was like, I know. I know. And we, I just held her hand. We held hands and just tears flowed. She said, I don't understand this. And I said, looking and getting a grasp on this is good. We have to hear it. We have to see it before we can heal it. But I was touched by that dialogue and her sincerity, actually. Because that lunatic is in there. But I think it's important to know that the lunatic is not in there alone, there's also a Buddha in there. And we can't forget that, right? So there's this Buddha. Yes, we all have the lunatic. Do you relate to that, anybody? <laughs> yes, it's like, what is that, right? <laughs> so we have to develop a, a strategy of loving response, a mindful loving response to suffering. We start with the suffering in ourselves and then we move out, right? How you work with your mind is how you're going to work with other people, right? If you can be with it in you, you'll be able to be with it in others. I think it's very key that we, we see that. And sometimes we have to go all the way down in the trenches. I like this poem by uh, Wendell Berry, To Go Into the Dark. 
To go into the dark with the light is to know the light. To know the dark, you have to go dark. Go without sight and find that the dark too blooms and sings and is traveled by dark feet and dark wings. So we start to begin to see some value in these experiences, right? We see values and we see value, we use it grist for the mill, right? It's not just that our suffering is meaningless, it's a point to it, it's school. Life is always school. And when I really treat it like that, everything becomes a blessing. I, tr- I really believe this, I say this, if anybody comes to EBMC, some of you have been, you know, come to East Bay Meditation Center, I give teachings on that, I probably say it three or four times every time I give a Dharma talk, life is school. Are you paying attention? If not, we repeat the chapter. Okay, here we go again. Samsara, right? All right, let's do this over until we learn. And every moment there's a learning. And with that, we can learn to respond with kindness because there's nothing else to, there's no other way that's sane. Any other way is an aspect of that lunatic, you know, suffering in others, suffering in ourselves. I'm always inspired by the Dalai Lama. Uh, his own compassion touches me. There's this beautiful new documentary about him out. It's called Sunrise to Sunset. It's so sweet. It follows him around. And he seems to like these kind of reality show type of things with himself. It shows him like getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning, brushing his teeth, and he's like looking at the camera like, okay. <laughs> You know, it's in his most personal chambers, you know, and it shows him. Uh, I was really fascinated by this. So he gets up at three and he pray, He does meditation and prayers for maybe three hours or so. He's in his shrine room, three or four hours, shows him prostrating and all these things. Then he has a treadmill in the middle of his shrine room, so he's working out on the treadmill. And they're, they're filming him for a long time. I'm like, God, he's working out, you know, and he's full monk robes running. <laughs> Right, And then it follows all his meetings all day long and him offering to people and going into Dharamsala and giving this teaching. And then, and then these beautiful dialogues with the filmmakers, these German filmmakers on the veranda about the nature of reality. Then it shows him watching TV. So at the end of that, he comes in, he turns on Animal Planet and he's like, oh, watching a, an elephant being born. And he's like, isn't that great? Then he watches himself. Suddenly he's on CNN giving an interview and he's laughing hysterically at himself on the TV. It's like, but everything was like, he has so many tears in his eyes the whole day. It was like compassion. Every group, you know, this group comes, this group comes. He's just offering kindness, like compassion, compassion, compassion to everybody. And I find that very inspiring. It's like, oh... Is this an example? This isn't somebody who we can put up on a pedestal. It's like, can we remember that he's teaching something in those moments? Right? Like, there's nothing else, no other good way to respond. So when you're here and you, you, you start to fall into despair or a mind state, another practice that I like a lot is... Um, sort of a, a Tong Lin practice that I do. So uh, a couple of weeks ago I was moving into a new place and I hurt my back. I never had back injuries before, so for me it was a like, uh-oh, what? <laughs> Wait, my, I can't walk, what's going on? You know, I was a little disoriented, like, I don't have back problems and wow, I can't stand up, you know, I was a little. And so I started to feel sorry for myself, like, oh, I have so much to do and I can't do this. And I was lying there with an ice pack on my back feeling kind of a little bit pitiful, I have to say, right? But then in that moment, I thought of all the people who I'd ever known who had had major back problems, right? And all these people who I thought in this moment, how many people are having back pain? And you know what? All my all my suffering did, it, my mental suffering, again, we talk about the physical was still there, but suddenly I started sending compassion. Like, oh, to all the beings who are having problems with their back. It started to happen naturally, but you know what? It transformed my whole mood. Right? So in any moment you're sitting here and you feel sorrow, imagine all the beings in that moment who also feel sorrow 
out of seven billion people on the planet, there's millions in that moment who are also, we join with them like, oh. And then suddenly it, my, my mind switched, right? Instead of feeling sorry for myself, I started naturally to send love to anybody who had pain. Oh, may we all be free of our back pain. So I'm not saying this is a magical practice, but people have said it is. The Tibetans swear by it. They say it cures everything. I really thought I had to go to the hospital, and by the next day my back was fine. So I'm just saying, you know, some kind of miracle thing. (laughs) I was convinced I was seriously injured, and the next day I was, you know, feeling very good again. So there's a certain power in this practice, I think. In our minds we get strong because Compassion makes us strong. It makes us fearless. Honestly, after I left my cabin retreat, there's kind of a fearlessness to me. I think, well, nothing's going to be as bad as that. Let's just feel the moment, right? After going through so much, right? Then these kind of little sufferings don't feel as intense. You know, so, okay, there's grief. Okay, let's cry for a while. Okay. You know, it's like, it's more manageable, you know, one of the things about us as Westerners, we're scared of our feelings, terrified of our feelings. And I was analyzing this the other day with a friend, and she said, well, I think we have a fear of snapping. Like, we'll feel something so terrible that we'll sort of snap. I don't know if that... I never had that fear, but I think people do. Like, if I open to this sorrow, they project they'll be in bed for two years eating Oreos or something, Right? But it's just a moment in time. So wisdom, here's the wisdom part of compassion. Everything is impermanent. Like if we have to remember that, that's how I'm able to get very close to suffering. It's like, well, okay, this is really hard, but it's not going to last forever. Maybe a few hours, maybe a few days. Right? It gives me some strength. So we have to be, you have to see that quality a lot, the, the impermanent nature. For a moment, just reflect on how many emotions you've had today. Does this feel feel like a lot? You've probably been on quite a journey, right? Happy, sad, bored, restless, excited, open, closed, you know, all these different emotions, right? Fear. So who is that? If that is the nature of things are always changing, we are not those emotions, Right? It's a changing dance. It's a play of consciousness, the mind always producing something, right? Change, change, change. So, whatever you're ha- going through in this moment, rest assured it's not going to last. So, that means the worst moment, where is that now? For a second, just reflect on the worst emotion you ever felt in your whole life. Right? A breakup or something. It's gone. Right? There's something powerful. If we have compassion, we can kind of meet that moment. We can meet it because what compassion does is it, it, it's like we bring a friend in. And that's what I did in my cabin. It was like, I can't bear this. And I would say, compassion, can you please come? And compassion would come. And sometimes I didn't have enough and I would call on uh, Kuan Yin or the Buddha i say, I don't have enough, can I borrow some? They would say, yes. <laughs> right? And then magically, the compassion would appear. Right? Like, oh, thank goodness. Right? Thank goodness you're here. I had a lot, of, uh, a lot of moments of being filled with gratitude that compassion had shown up on the scene. <laughs> so we can cultivate it. So we do these practices about caring. Another practice that's really good, in addition to thinking about when you have a certain thing arise, an emotion or a thought or or a sensation, thinking of others, the other thing is to train yourself. Surprisingly, a lot of people report on retreat spring, after I'll I'll give a talk on compassion, they say, they come to me one-on-one and say, I don't actually know what you're talking about. And I'll say, okay, let's do this. So for just a moment, as a practice, Everybody take your right hand out like this, right hand. Left hand down, and put your right hand in your left hand. And you see how you're holding your hand? And the practice that I do when I feel confused or suffering 
is I hold my own hand. I say, I care about this. I'm confused, I don't know what's up or down, but I care that there is suffering. And just this gentle gesture, the whole body, even if you don't feel the compassion, it will start to come. Right? It will start because you did it, you gave a, you did a gesture of non-violence. Right? Not our typical launching of the, you know, the dart. Right? We, we do a gesture of inner non-violence. Right? We touch our own heart. We touch our own hand. This is very important. When I was, also another time I was on very long retreats on the East Coast, there was one time I was just going through huge, my practice has been epic with emotion, purifying huge amounts of grief. I mean, more grief, I don't know, ancestor grief, collective, earth body grief. Uh, I would have tremendous bouts of grieving, uh, just oceans of tears. And one time I was on a long retreat and I had this loneliness that was so lonely. I don't know. Maybe some of you might be working with that kind of loneliness, but very lonely loneliness, right? And so I was exploring the nature of loneliness. And at night, I remember I couldn't sleep because all I, I would be, the loneliness was so intense, it was like keeping me up at night. And I remember behind me, I would put these giant pillows. I would pack this bed that I had a little tiny bed, you know, smaller than the ones here in the little dorm where I was. And I would put all these pillows and I would imagine they were like the bosoms of the great mother. And then I would go down into like this, like a little baby, and go, hold me, mother. I don't have enough compassion. I'd imagine these big black arms would come around like this. It was the only way I could sleep. <laughs> right? So sometimes we become childlike here. Have you noticed that quality? We become very uh, regressed, right? Because we, we're healing things from when we're very young. And you might respond to things here in a way you would never respond at home. It's pretty normal, actually. Sort of, we're in an altered state. So I just give you that image. It might be helpful for somebody if you're feeling uh, that type of feeling and you just want to offer some kindness to yourself. So, we come, we start to grow in these qualities of love, and care, and wakefulness. It's a huge part. We start to be able to be more present with the difficult. That's our training, to be with the beauty and the difficult. One of the things that's interesting is, because we will move into joy tomorrow, all of these things are like a jewel. We just turn them, right? Kindness. Compassion is love turned towards suffering, right? And then kindness turned towards joy becomes sympathetic joy. And then equanimity, right? That's the, the other one that we work with. But it's important to see this as an organic process and that nothing that arises is ever wrong. Whatever arises on retreat is supposed to arise. I talked about this in the small group today, that we come to retreats with agendas. Day one, my mom, yeah, I'll heal that. Day two, self-esteem, yeah, good self-esteem. Three, connect to the earth, right? And then we get here and it's, where's my agenda? Nothing's working out. I don't want to be tired. I don't want to be, you know, enraged all day long. I didn't order this. This something's going on here. It must be the food, right? And then we start looking out, right? And it's, it's the yogis here. They're just restless. I'm getting in their energies too much. You know, we get all these things, right? Spirit rock. I don't know. It's not that great, <laughs> you know. Instead of being, oh, it's our own mind. What gets purified on retreat is usually totally out of our control. It's intelligence unfolding. We surrender. There's something doing itself here, right? And we kind of get out of the way of that. And when we get in the way of that, we suffer, right? We suffer. So working with other people, I just want to say a couple of things. When we start to work with ourselves with some wisdom, then when we move to working with other people, 
If you understand your mind, you'll understand other people's minds, right? That people operate under a tremendous amount of confusion. I think what's a beautiful story and also heartbreaking was when the Buddha reported that when the Buddha attained uh, full enlightenment, uh, shortly after he, he wept, when he surveyed, he had this awakened consciousness and he could see the whole planet and all the beings all at once. And he thought, oh my God, Everybody is looking for happiness, but doing the things that lead to unhappiness. And it broke his heart, right? Because that's our predicament, right? We want happiness. We want peace. It's really our birthright. I mean, Buddhism is really about happiness. It gets kind of a certain rap here. (laughs) I remember when I first started practicing, I, I... I remember yelling at one of my first teachers, not yelling, but I was like, all you guys do is obsess on suffering. You're obsessed with it, right? I remember like kind (laughs) of challenging him. This was Joseph Goldstein, by the way. (laughs) And he laughed, actually. He said, we're looking at suffering in order to be free. You know, it's like you go to a doctor, you get a diagnosis, right? I don't want to hear about my illness. No, 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 no. Right? And then there's no hope for a cure. Right? They're like, well, we have some cure. And like, no, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to know. You know how those, those people out there, right? I'd rather die. I'm not going to the hospital. My t- father's like that. You know? So, you know, so this is all about freedom. So that inherent confusion is what breaks my heart, too. Like when I'm in Oakland and I see people doing things and I think, that's not going to be a good outcome, right? But people think it's going to lead to happiness. If I steal that, you know, somebody wants something, I want to be happy, I need that to be happy, right? So let's go back to the Hopi creation story. It's all in us, but we don't recognize it. We go out, even harming groups of people, right? If I get rid of that group, I'll be happy, it's a strange consciousness. It's sad. It's very painful. It's like, wow, the oppressor. Somebody said that today. The oppressor and the oppressed. Right? They enter into a dance over many lifetimes. So it's important to understand with compassion everything is unfolding lawfully even if we don't understand it. There's a lawful unfolding And that helps me get close to suffering because I know it's impermanent. Even the worst situation I see, even somebody imprisoned, even somebody I think it's unfair, even some injustice, I think, well, this is an impermanent manifestation. And the causes, the great cause is delusion, right? Mass delusion. There's an inmate that um, I'm writing about in a book and I have a, a chapter in one of my books called The Prison of the Mind. There's somebody that I care about. Uh, his name is Jarvis J. Masters, and he's on death row at San Quentin. And he uh, has written two beautiful books, one called Finding Freedom, one called That Bird Has My Wings. And um, he writes a lot, but he suffers a lot because he... He suffers because his life is very constrict, you know, constricted, right? But he says that his heart is cert- a certain level of freedom. He's been in, he's in his late, maybe his late 40s, he might be early 50s, but he's been on death row for about 25 years now. He was uh, sent to San Quentin when he was 19. And uh, he, it's a sad story. He, he was accused of killing a prison guard, um, and he was accused of sharpening a knife that killed him, and he's denied that, but things are as they are. It was a group of people accused and then given death sentences, but nobody seems to know the real who did what. So he's in prison there. And I think about Jarvis because he became a devout Buddhist a couple years after entering San Quentin, and the stories that he writes about of the guards and the food and the life is just, it's really touching. (laughs) And he has many people writing him, obviously. And uh, Tokol Chadru Rinpoche came to visit him and gave him a Bodhisattva ordination. And he, here he is trying to be a Buddha in the most violent place in America, right? 
San Quentin's pretty notorious. <laughs> so his compassion, he writes about a lot, how he's developed his heart to deal with the complex situation. He's come to see compassion is his huge refuge. So he's going to be writing a new book all about how he's developed this unbreakable compassion for all, from all his years on death row. Right? So I just thought that was beautiful, Jarvis. So we work with, but Jarvis won't always be locked up. One day he will be free. Maybe it's not in this life, though. Right? But everything is impermanent, and he recognizes that now. He says, yes, one day I won't have this situation, and I'm fine. I'll stay here as long as need be. You know? One day I will be out of this situation, and I will have learned So we can use anything to learn. Life, teaching, teaching us all the time. We're never, we're never where we're not supposed to be. Everything is always on time, right? Everything is always on time. I like this poem, it's by an old Native American elder. It was translated by David Wagner. It's called Lost. Stand still. The trees ahead and the bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here, and you must treat it as a powerful stranger, must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes. Listen, it answers. I have made this place around you. If, it, if you leave, you may come back again saying, Here, no two trees are the same to raven. No two branches are the same to the wren. If what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. So that's, we're never lost. There's always here. That's wisdom, right? We're always here. Presence is always here. We always have a home to come back to, a refuge of awareness. And if you bring compassion and kindness in, you'll never want to leave you'll find your true home. And in that home, you become very strong, right? Visitors come, you wave to them, visitors go, <laughs> goodbye, <laughs> right? There's, we just dance with life differently. We're unafraid. Unafraid even when we are afraid. I was thinking about the people today who remind me of who have the, this sort of inner strength. And I was thinking of, there was, um, you know, some people say, what about compassion? What about getting overwhelmed by it? The world, oh my gosh. I mean, the world is, it's a lot going on. The government shut down. Oh, I probably shouldn't have said that, your own retreat. Well, things are, you know, goes on and on, you know, the dramas. <laughs> right? These power battles of Washington and power battles in our own minds, Right? You know, on and on and on the wheel, the wheel turns, right? The chapters unfold. But it seems like the people, if you really look, the people who have a huge amount of compassion are able to hold so much. So uh, about 10 years ago, Michigan State, uh, the dean said he was disheartened by the student body and wanted to inspire them, right? He's like, ah, I don't know about this group. And so for their inauguration, he invited all the Nobel laureates. So His Holiness the Dalai Lama comes, and then uh, Desmond Tutu, and all these people who had endured all this stuff, right? They've seen more just destruction of humanity and just inhumanity, right? Just unbelievable. And so there's these great photos that a friend of mine had sent for me. And so they're all backstage giggling, right? And Desmond Tutu, this great bishop, South Africa, who went through all of apartheid and led people beautifully and was part of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and met with families who had had 
all their children killed by the, you know, by the racist regime, the police. And I mean, just on and on, he had held so much. But his heart is very buoyant and radiant, right? So there's this, so Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu are very good friends, actually. So there's a picture of the Dalai Lama trying to get his hat, he had a little hat on. And there, so there they are in the midst, this panelist of people who had endured and seen the most, Right, and they had people who had been in one Tibetan lama who had been incarcerated and tortured for 30 years, and another woman who had endured all kinds of atrocity. And they were all laughing. This great joy was there. It's like, well, how is that? Right? It's compassion. They all said that. Desmond Tutu said, it's compassion. It gives me happiness. Like, I just hold it as this. It's the cosmic delusion of everyone, right? Actions upon actions. Everybody has to learn, right? We're all learning. And if somebody has to learn by harming someone, all we can do is witness that and wish them well, right? We can try to intervene. We can send love. But we have to hold the duality of light and dark. Prajnaparamita, I love this statue, the, the mother of the Buddhas. Prajna means wisdom. Right? Paramita. Paramita means power. So it's like perfection of wisdom. She has her hands in this mudra. It's a mudra of duality, opposites. Right? In Prajna, she sits there, the great mother, right? That's, and she holds the pair of opposites like this at the heart the light, the dark, the opposites. Right? And so we always. I encourage you to just hold that gesture sometimes. It's a kind of, it's a, it is like a power mudra. I was never so into mudras until recently when I, I held this, like, ah, the, the light and the dark, here they are. In any moment, heaven and hell, right? One moment heaven, next hell. If you just get in the idea of the Great Mother holding that, right, that's also compassion. We have to hold the delusion and the joy. Life's bittersweet. It really is bittersweet because just when everything's one way, it changes. So just to conclude here, to remember some practices of compassion, to remember when you're suffering, to think of others, that can be helpful, right? To make your heart wide, right? And think of all the beings maybe who are experiencing something similar, All beings go through heartache. All beings go through sorrow. All beings are born. All beings die. We're the same. So we can expand that. Another practice is to use your coming back with your own heart to hold your own hand. Right? We have to pull out that quality. Call on that. Like, oh, this is a dark moment. I'm lost. Can you come, compassion? And it'll come right there. Call on the chief. The chief will appear. Right? And just keep calling if you don't feel it until you do. Could be a few minutes. <laughs> don't give up. <laughs> right? It will arise. It's your intention. It's already in you. That's why it arises. Right? It's in you. It's in you. And then to hold humanity with some of the understanding of the duality of life, the 10,000 joys, the 10,000 sorrows. You know, people are playing out their lessons. And it's painful to watch people create suffering for themselves. It is. I see in Oakland, working in urban environments, I'll see acts of violence or aggression. And I don't have hostility. I just say, you know, think to myself, I hope you learned this soon that that's not the way, you know, to freedom or happiness. Right? We don't have to hate those who are confused. Right? We just offer care like, oh, I'm sorry. Now I say I'm sorry a lot when I see suffering and a spontaneous hand comes to my heart. It's like I really feel a pain. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. And we can feel that with people. Right? We hold that. Being awake means feeling everything. Many great masters, they often weep a lot. They feel everything. And there's still joy. You tell a sad story, there's tears. Not all of them. Baba Muktananda, the founder of Siddha Yoga, <laughs> when somebody would come tell all their problems, he would start hysterically laughing. So there you go. You could also develop a sense of humor. That's a, the final compassion. 
crazy compassion is to start laughing at the whole drama of it all, right? <laughs> so, so I think I'll just stop there. Just some thoughts about this that I wanted to share with you all. And um, I, I appreciate your dedication and meeting with you all is very, very, very touching. And I know that we're developing these qualities, so don't give up. Don't lose heart. There's nothing better I think one could do with their entire life than to develop love and compassion for the benefit of all beings. I truly believe that. I truly do. So may we all become more compassionate together. So let's just sit for just one moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.